This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Hi, everybody. I am so happy to be joined this week by my friend Misha Collins. Misha is an actor who recently finished a long run starring in the hit show Supernatural. Hi, this is Misha Collins from Supernatural. The moment I realized the show was a hit was when my son brought home a game of Clue, and it was Supernatural Clue, and it had my face on it. Now, you say that you have an irreverent, megalomaniacal persona online. Online. Are you an irreverent, megalomaniacal person offline? Um, That's an excellent question. We have an unfortunate new plague in society, which is cyberbullying. A lot of people find themselves victims. Hi, I'm Misha Collins, and I'm fighting to build more empathy in the world. Sorry, not sorry. Misha, first of all, how long have we known each other? That's a great question, Alyssa. I think the answer is on the order of 20 years. Wow. I mean, when we say known each other, I did an episode of Charmed. I don't even know. You probably don't remember this. I do remember. We kissed. Yes. But I have to take you to task on this because we kissed. And then when we were playing brother and sister in that pilot, reinventing the wheelers. Yeah. Years later. I was like, hey, we kissed. And you were like, what? (laughs) So I didn't remember the first time, but I remember you telling me that we kissed. I reminded you about it enough times. And I believed you. now you you remember. (laughs) (laughs) So 20 years ago, and you were doing Supernatural a big chunk of that time. And it came to an end in 2020, right? I mean, 12 years of your life. Tell us what that show meant to you. And I know what it's like to do a show for that long and to not leave my bed for three weeks after it wraps. Did you have the same type of reaction? I have been in a state of paralysis of sorts, I think, for most of the last year. Jared, Jensen, and Misha here. And we have some big news that we wanted y'all to hear from us Um, we just told the crew uh, that uh, that though we're very, very excited about moving into our 15th season, mm-hmm. um, it will be our last. Um, 15 years of a show that has certainly changed my life. I know it's changed these two guys' life. Uh, and and you, we just wanted to wanted you to hear from us yeah. that um, that though we're excited uh, about next year, um, it, it will be uh, it will be the finale. For me, it's a combination of things. One is, oh, this provided me a very clear 
framework of what I was doing every day and what my rhythm for the year was. And in the absence of that, I have this wide open field and have to actually figure out what I want to do with my life and have to make really pointed decisions and not just be swept up in a schedule that someone else is making for me. And that schedule consists of telling us when to wake up, telling us when to have your breakfast, when to eat, what to wear, where to stand, what to say. So to really have freedom after that time, I know is really exciting, but still unnerving and just runs the gamut of emotions. Yeah, I am trying to embrace the unknown. And I'm also trying not to jump on the first thing that comes along and trying to make sure that I am moving forward with purpose. But it's an interesting 180 going from this breakneck schedule where everything is dictated from someone else to a situation where I wake up in the morning and I have to decide, okay, what is it that I am going to focus on today? And I, like you, have a lot of other things going on and engaged in the political realm and have my own ventures and projects that I'm working on. So it's not like my time is idle, but it takes on a very different quality in the absence of a show like that. And there's also this element of community and quasi-family in a working environment that that's intense. It's interesting talking to somebody. There's six other people in the world who have this shared experience. <laughs> this that's right. That's truly right. And one of the least relatable things we could be talking about. But we relate to one another on this point. But I think people are still interested. Just so my listeners understand, like... You spend more time on set than you do with your own family. It's a group of people, and we're all kind of misfits that come from all over the United States or sometimes Canada or wherever you're shooting that find each other and have this common denominator that binds you to each other for as long as you're blessed to be on the air. How do you think the industry has changed over the years? Ah. That's a really interesting question. I don't know if I have a really great vantage point on that because I went from being kind of a struggling actor to just working on one show for a dozen years. And so those are just remarkably different experiences. But I think probably one of the biggest things that have changed in my tenure as an actor is that the quality of celebrity has changed. So the way in which a fame, quote unquote, I hate all of the words, all of the words. All of the words, all of them. But a famous person, a celebrity, whatever, the way in which we interact with our audience or our fans has changed radically with the advent of social media. And that, I think, is probably the biggest marker that I can point to. It is a huge aspect of my career now and work life is the way in which I communicate with the public. And it used to be, even when I was starting out, it used to be the way you communicated with the public was by doing an interview in a print magazine. It was totally different. And now there's a dialogue that you can have with your audience and a level of engagement that you can have with your audience that was completely unthinkable before. And I think is an incredibly valuable tool if used properly. You and I know like this is a way that you can mobilize people for political action. This is a way you can engage people for charitable contributions. And it's a way that you can gain insight from your audience about what they care about and what's important to them. So it's dynamic. It's a totally different relationship. And for me, anyway, it has become a very important feature of my work life. Yeah. And you do such innovative things with your platform. And I think that that's part of it. And I feel like it's a whole other career. Even though it's an extension of who we are, it's something that I 
almost feel is more conducive to resonating with people than when I was on Who's the Boss, when that was what the barometer of like, I can really relate to you. You know, it was all about the character. It wasn't about being able to relate to me as a person, being able to relate to me as a mom or you as a dad. And I feel like social media has given people this like behind the curtain perspective of who we are. And if we don't take advantage of that, because you're right, there was a time when if we wanted to talk about something substantial, we had to wait for the opportunity. We had to wait for our publicists to try to set up an interview on whatever. But this is like, if we have something to say, we control it for better, for worse. And I wanted to interview you because I feel like there are so few people in our position that are willing to put themselves out there to really take a stand for what is fair and just. 18, I think, years ago, Alyssa Milano and I teamed up to vanquish, was it Warlocks? We won. We were victorious and we will be victorious again. We're getting the band back together again. And we are teaming up to uh, create a day of action to contact our elected representatives and tell them that we want them to hold Donald Trump and his family accountable for colluding with Vladimir Putin in the 2016 elections. So I want to talk to you a little bit about being an activist and an actor at the same time. You're really vocal, which you know I love, and it's all about causes that are important to you. But I just want to compare notes. How many times a day do people tell you to shut up and stick to acting? It's interesting. I got a lot of that early on. And then luckily, a lot of my fans are really cruel people who will go after somebody who says that. So those voices have been silenced. Oh, you're so lucky. Can you send them my way? <laughs> I wonder if that's because you're a dude, too. Yeah, I think generally speaking, in our culture, we are more accepting of vocal men. I just think men have an easier time on the Internet. I think women are harassed, sexually harassed. The misogyny is so obvious and transparent. I was just doing a TikTok the other day. I haven't put it out yet, but the guy called me sweetie. And uh, he didn't even spell sweetie right, for fuck's sake. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. Sweetie. Shh. The grown-ups are talking. It's just un believable. My concern is always that young people who are actors who are coming up in the industry would look to my social media and be like, you know what, I want to do it like that. And then start to read the comments and be like, nope, I do not. I want no part of this. And I fear that it scares young people away just seeing the vitriol that I get. But I'm glad you don't get it. You're also, though, in a slightly different position because I think you have actually been positioned as a voice of the left by the right wing. So mm -hmm. I think you have been targeted specifically by like right wing political activists. Whereas for some reason, and maybe it's because I just haven't been quite as prominent as you, I don't feel like I've been... Uh, recipient of that particular type of ire. But yeah, it's an interesting question. And one of the things that I have found over time that has been quite useful is stop looking at the comments altogether. I just, for the most part, don't. So if people are saying that I'm an asshole, I'm not seeing it a lot. 
I learned very early on that negativity bias is real for me and I can see one negative comment and it will derail me even if there were 100 comments of praise before that. So I just tend to ignore it and that seems healthier for me. Going back to your earlier comment about just using our platforms to advocate for the things that we care about or that are important in the world and making that choice and the question about why it is that not everyone does that, I feel like it is our duty as people with platforms and opinions to be vocal. And I was reflecting on this just a couple of days ago. I have a friend who has a very large following and he was saying like, I just don't want to alienate the right-wing fans I have. And I thought, why not? What is our purpose on the planet? Is your follower count more important than building a society that our kids can grow up in and feel safe? Is it more important to be famous than it is to have a positive impact on the world. I guess I just don't understand the calculus at all that goes into I don't that. either. And I have friends that are huge movie stars that have so much freaking money. And my thought is, okay, maybe when you're starting out, but you're hugely famous. You're known everywhere. What more do you want? What more from people do you expect to receive that you are afraid of alienating people? Like you've done it. You've done it. Now is the time. It can feel really lonely. And we're not really great at standing up for people who are being criticized. Like I was just thinking about when Mark Ruffalo spoke out about the Israel-Palestine conflict and everyone was pretty silent. For whatever reason, I have a, a love of justice. Um, it, it really means something to me. And um, anywhere there's injustice uh, in, in the world, I, I think as, as an artist, we have a responsibility to speak up about it. My connection to Palestine came through Palestinians and hearing their stories. And then watching, you know, this 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 um, asymmetrical warfare being being uh, acted upon them, and violence being acted upon them, and and who pays the price? It's the citizenry. And what I see there is wrong. Nobody's going like, you know what? Maybe we just should appreciate these people for all that they have done. And sometimes they're not going to get it right. And that's okay. And I think Mark was forced to apologize or coerced into apologizing. And then the apology wasn't good enough. Sometimes I feel like we can't win, but that shouldn't stop us. And anyone has a platform. And my listeners are sick of me saying this, but I don't care if you have millions of followers or if you have 45 followers. It is your obligation to treat that platform as something where you can influence and make change and make people happy and ease some suffering. And I think that's really important. We all have to take care of each other. And speaking to that, so I sent out the Me Too tweet and I was on Insatiable and then we were basically canceled the next year. So I didn't really feel the effects of Me Too on a set. 
So I'm wondering if you felt any difference. Did they bring in intimacy coordinators? Was there a reporting protocol? Did it feel different after that? I think so. Yeah, I really do. I think that people who were operating in a like borderline inappropriate way dialed it way back. I think more than anything, I saw self-monitoring from people, like people whose behavior was questionable previously, they started behaving better and jokes stopped being hurled around that were slightly inappropriate. I do think that it changed the tone and tenor of the workplace in a great way. Have you worked with an intimacy coordinator yet? No. (laughs) I just worked with one and it is bizarre and glorious all at the same time. The guy that was playing my leading man is Sam Page, who is just a lovely person. And there's this woman that comes in and basically talks to you about the scene. And she's got all of these essential oils. I shit you not. Like (laughs) one for calming the nerves, one for focus. And you rehearse on set with her right there. She's kind of like the liaison between the actors and production to make sure nothing shady happens. And then in my dressing room, Sam and I do, she comes and we do this breathing exercise together where we have to look into each other's eyes and actually breathe at the same time. And then right before you're ready to shoot, you tag in. By the way, you rehearse everything, everything, where the hands go. Can I kiss you here? Are you okay if this happens? So everything before you even start shooting is almost like a fight scene, right? Like they're a stunt coordinator, but for intimacy. And then you go on the set and because it was COVID, we had to gargle with this hydrogen peroxide mouthwash so that, you know, we couldn't give COVID back and forth, which was ridiculous. But afterwards, and this is the part that I found so fascinating, afterwards, you're forced to breathe together and then tag out. So you're not bringing it home And I thought, you know what, like I would use this for a crying scene even because I don't know about you, but the depths of my darkest being that I have to dive into to get emotion, it's really uncomfortable. And if I had someone that could tag me in, say, "Okay, you're going to do your best work right now and then tag me out and say, you know what, you're done. You did it. Go home and be with your family. I think I would really appreciate that. It's really a cool thing. How interesting. Over the years, I've had sex scenes in things that actually felt so gross because there weren't those conversations. I had this one scene in this terrible movie that I won't even mention the name of it, but I had this one scene where I was having sex with this woman. And while we're rolling, the director says, okay, Misha, grab her tits. And I I was like, oh, like we're rolling. And then I did it. And then she recoiled. It just felt awful. But things like that happen have happened multiple times in my career. And it was because there was no talking about it. Mm-hmm. Everyone was acting like it was taboo, but yet we were going to do it anyway. They're being told, hey, make that hotter. Mm-hmm. Make that sexier. Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What's sexy to me might not be sexy to you, <laughs> right? If I say, hey, can we slow that down a little bit? Can we use some breath work? What if your back arches a little bit more here? It was very unhealthy, I think, in general. One of my sexual assaults happened during a love scene. No way. Yep. And I stopped everything and I started crying and I ran into my trailer and the director, who was a fucking woman, 
And the producers came into my trailer and they were like, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to call the police? Do you want to shut down? Like, how do you want to proceed? And this was pretty close to Who's the Boss ending. So I was still trying to define like that I wasn't a child actor anymore and just trying desperately to not make waves and not turn out to be one of those statistics. And so I didn't do anything. And they fucking made me go back and shoot another six hours of that love scene. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was horrible. So obviously things needed to change in our industry. I just got a text from a lovely actress that I worked with on another pilot, another one of my failed pilots, and she's just so special. And she came out as queer to the producers, and they've been giving her a really, really hard time. And so she was asking, like, what should she do? She didn't even know that there was a SAG hotline number that she could call to report anything that was going on, which I also found interesting. But we still have so far to go in our industry. And that's not only the onset conditions, but it's also the stories we tell, the diversity and inclusion, the representation. We're trying. It is getting there. But we (laughs) have so much further to go. And I've made a pretty conscious decision that when I shoot and I am a producer on something that there's going to be 50% marginalized community crew members and women and writers in the writer's room. And it's proven that if you put women in a position of power, that the working environment is supposed to be so much better. I don't know because I've never been in a working environment where it's predominantly women, but I'm looking forward to feeling what that feels like. I'm looking forward to feeling what it feels like to be a marginalized demographic. Or just a minority. No, I'm fine with marginalized. I feel like it's our turn. Your turn for sure. You're a white man. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm looking forward to that, taking my shift in that department. I had a dream last night. There was this slate of animated features that had come out. It was like 20 animated features, and they were all starring female characters. I love it. It was a pretty great dream. I have a lot of friends who are white men who are bemoaning the fact that they can't get work now. and You have to be a minority. And I feel like, yeah, great. That's the way it should be. I mean, the pendulum has got to swing back in the other direction because we have been just enjoying this seat of privilege for far too long at the expense of others. I think one of the things that people in a position of privilege, even during the Black Lives Matter movement of the last year, keep failing to recognize is that privilege has historically come at a cost to the people who are not in the position of privilege. Even if it doesn't seem glaringly obvious at any given moment, That privilege is riding on the backs of someone else. And I think we need to pay attention to that. I couldn't agree more. And I also think what I feel in my heart is that our black and brown communities have saved us so many times. They have built this country on stolen land. And it really is the type of situation when you look at all this through a feminist lens, it's not really about white supremacy. It's more about supremacy in general. It's about getting rid of any hierarchy that we face. A hierarchy could be in a relationship. It could be as a parent, but we have to work towards a world where we diminish all hierarchy, especially when it comes at the expense of those that have saved us and built us and taught us and rescued us. 
So you and I were both fighting in the trenches for President Biden during the election. And as always, it was an honor to fight beside you. He's several months now into his term. Do you feel like things are different? I do. I feel like it's been a sea change. For starters, I feel like I can think about something other than the president for a few hours at a stretch. So much more free time. It's really been lovely. He's such a person of integrity. And I think that over the past several presidents, I lost track of just how important that is. Joe is an excellent role model, an honorable man. He's got character. He's what we all look for in a president. He's a man of integrity. When I think of Joe Biden, I think of someone who is reliable, someone who's trustworthy. Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump because he has the most experience and he reaches out to the most people within our country and can make a difference. If we're going to beat Donald Trump, we need somebody who understands what people are going through. Joe Biden is a man who leads with his heart, and that's the kind of leader we need right now. And the stark contrast between Biden and Trump in that department is so compelling. So even setting aside policy and agenda, the fact that we have somebody in the highest office in the land who is a person that you can trust, who's a person of integrity, who's a person that is not doing things out of self-interest, that alone, I think, actually changes the emotional well-being of our entire country and world. So yeah, I think it's making a big difference. I also think that there's something really nice about knowing that this man leads from a place of service and understands that there are activists and advocates that work in these spaces that he is setting policy for. And what a glorious thing to have this man who trusts activists and advocacy groups to collect information from them, to get advice from them on legislation. Because everything that we're facing, there are people that are in the trenches doing the real work, boots on the ground work, whether that be in immigration, whether it be in women's rights, whether it be anti-hate, whether it be our economy, whether it be jobs, with student debt. There are people who live and breathe these issues. And he takes their feelings into consideration. He takes their advice into consideration. And I think that alone is going to make the country so much stronger. There are so many issues. He's bringing a lot of different voices to the table that have been marginalized for a long time. I think the fact that you and I worked closely with the campaign and saw firsthand, there were so many women of color in positions of power in that campaign. Like, that was awesome. I think another thing that we're seeing here is coming through this pandemic, this is a true global crisis. And it's a situation in which we need centralized authority to solve the problem. If ever there were a time that we depend on government to function at a high level, it's right now. And seeing how he's just grabbed the helm and used the resources available to actually begin solving this problem it makes a huge difference. And I think that also makes a great case for thoughtful government, as opposed to what the libertarians and the far right want to do, just disband government. No, we need it. And if ever there was a shining example of that, it's how Biden has handled the pandemic as opposed to Trump. Sometimes I allow myself to go into a spiral and think about where we would be today if Trump won. And I don't even know. I don't know why I would do that to myself. But but I do because I feel like there's a certain amount of we have to continue to be appreciative 
and appreciate where we are and especially from where we came from. And I know that we are going to come out of this better than we went into it. And when I say into it, I mean five, six years ago when Trump even began to run. Our government is dysfunctional and there's no real way around that. And we have to figure out how to fix the Senate. That's for sure, because it is broken. I'm happy that they were able to figure out bipartisan infrastructure, build back better bill. That's great. Compromise is great. But we need a lot more of that. What are the causes that are most important to you now that we have someone in the White House who is on the same side as us? I mean, what do you think that we need to do better and push hardest for? It's funny, I keep on getting that question from various different angles, and I actually don't have a ready answer because I think there are so many things that are actually really critical, and I don't have a hierarchy in my head necessarily. Climate change is obviously unbelievably important, and it's incredible to witness how fast it's changing. I mean, we're seeing record heat all over the American West right now. It's so stark, it's so severe, and it's so relentless. It's going to be catastrophic. It is already catastrophic. I want to note that the extreme heat we're seeing in the West is not only a risk amplifier for wildfires, it's a threat in and of itself. People are hurting. We can't pretend it's not happening. We can't ignore it. There's going to be far too much death and destruction and dislocation and mass migration for us to ignore that. I think that's important. I think reasonable gun control is utterly essential because kids are being traumatized, even in schools that don't have shootings, by the active shooter drills. It's absolutely fucking horrifying that elementary school kids should be having to prepare for scenarios where a fellow student is going to be running through the school with an assault weapon. That's unbelievable. That's a genuine trauma that these kids are enduring in public schools and private schools across the country right now. That's completely unacceptable. I think voting rights is essential. And it's like this horrifying outpicturing. It's an extension of Jim Crow. It's an extension of all of these post-Reconstruction voter restrictions that were basically extensions of slavery. And we're seeing that still playing out now. It's 160 years later. How can that still be happening? And I also think there are other really basic ones. We have to deal with income inequality. It doesn't make sense that during the pandemic, the hundred millionaires and billionaires got 50% wealthier and the poorest Americans got poorer. That's not right. If we're spending trillions of dollars on stimulus, that should have been something that was reallocating wealth. It shouldn't have been somehow functioning to make the rich richer, which it did. So We've got a lot to work on. I do think it probably all hinges on voting rights at the outset. That's the first domino that has to fall, because if the Republicans can restrict who can vote, can keep black and brown and poor people from voting, then they can hold on to the seat of power and they can continue to be climate deniers and continue to make the rich richer. So I think we have to solve that problem first.
When I started NORA after Parkland, you were one of the first people to join up. And I just want to say thank you for that. Alyssa, thank you for everything that you've done. Like I've messaged you recently to basically ask you to be my mentor in being a celebrity who's politically active because I think you've done such a great job and you are so well-informed. I know that you rely on the expertise of real specialists and academics. And I know that you put a lot of thought into everything you do. And you've been the spear tip of some of the most important movements that we've had in the last mm. few years. Like you've been right there. I mean, me too. That's literally changed our culture. I'm grateful to call you a friend and comrade in this battle for sure. I was very happy to amplify the incredible work that Tarana Burke has done over the last decade. You do some really incredible things too. I want you to tell everyone about GISH. Is that how you pronounce it? It is. GISH stands for Greatest International Scavenger Hunt. It's a truncated version of my original acronym, which was GISH WES, which was a bit cumbersome and doesn't roll <laughs> off the tongue, which was Greatest International Scavenger Hunt the world has ever seen because I just wanted extra hyperbole in it. It's called GISH WES. G-I-S-H-W-H-E-S. What is this? The Greatest International Scavenger Hunt the world has ever seen. It's an amazing global scavenger hunt that you can compete in from anywhere, even your own home. You can sign up and invite your own team of players from friends and family, or you sign up and we'll join you into an awesome team of players from all over the world. It operates in 100 countries. It's easiest to describe as a scavenger hunt, but it's actually a way in which I have devised to gamify, I call it gamify good. We play this game all over the world where people are given a list of items to either do or make out in the world with their teammates. But in the process, we end up doing a lot of really great things and also creating a lot of art. So there's a few different fronts on which it's been really gratifying for me. One is that I get a lot of messages from people that say, after doing GISH, I decided to quit my job and go to art school and go back to my passion, which was creating. I get a lot of messages from people saying, my best friends are my teammates that I was randomly assigned to in GISH. We're now getting together every year at New Year's, and these are my people, and I love hearing those messages. And then we've also done some amazing collective actions together. We resettled many families, many Syrian refugee families that were living in tent camps in Lebanon and got them housing and education and medical care. And the first family that we started with was this incredibly moving story of this family that had been living in this tent in Lebanon. They had gone across the desert from Syria when the mother and the family had been shot in the spine by a sniper while she was tending to her garden and was paralyzed from the neck down. She hadn't been out of her cot in this tent for two years. And the eldest daughter in the family had tried to kill herself so that there'd be enough food for the rest of the kids in the family when she was 12 years old. And now we got this family food and money for school and housing and a wheelchair for the mother. And now they're living in Europe. And the daughter who had tried to kill herself is doing pre-med and wants to be a doctor. And there's so many stories like that from Gish that are so satisfying. And then also I get to have people do things that are humiliating for them. And then I can laugh at the <laughs> images that I see. So win-win. <laughs> tell everybody about Random Acts. Random Acts is a 
charity that I started. It's a 501c3 that I started just over 10 years ago. In fact, I was just looking at photos that came up on my phone from 10 years ago yesterday when I was in Haiti starting construction on the Jack Mel Children's Center, which houses orphan children. It has capacity for 200 kids there. And it was our first big project. And I guess this sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about having a platform and the ability to galvanize people. It's like as soon as I saw on Twitter after the earthquake in Haiti that I could post something and all of a sudden there would be $30,000 donated to UNICEF. Following the earthquake in Haiti back in 2010, actor Misha Collins could not sit idly by and requested that his Twitter followers help him donate to the cause. Thus began Random Acts. Hello, you've been pickpocketed in reverse. Random Acts is a nonprofit organization stationed out of the United States with volunteers worldwide. As the name suggests, random acts of kindness fuel the cause, be it buying a stranger a cup of coffee or helping rebuild Haiti. I was like, oh, wait a minute. It is my moral responsibility to try to do something with this. So that was our first big project. And we've done projects all around the world. But the general operating principle of Random Acts is just to amplify the message that small acts of kindness have a ripple effect in the world. And if you can be conscientious and compassionate, it will have an exponential effect. I was raised by a single mom and we were on federal assistance for much of my childhood and homeless at times. And there are Isolated incidents that I can remember where strangers like pulled off on the side of the road when we were camped in a tent and gave us a gift certificate to Abdow's Big Boy for $14. And it was like, what a gift from on high. What an incredible blessing. That happened when I was six years old. When I think about it now, it still resonates with me. And I think we often forget how little it takes to make a transformative impact on someone's life. So that's the message that I'm trying to keep beating the drum about because I think it's important and I know that it had a big impact on me. Where can people find you to help you with all of your activism and advocacy work? Randomax.org is Randomax website. Gish.com is the website for Gish. Actually, we have a summer event coming up. And if you're in a place where it's still shelter in place, you can still participate and we'll put you on a team with amazing people if you don't have a lot of people to join with you. But it's so fun and so impactful. So I hope you join me for that. And people can find me on the social medias if they want, because <laughs> I'm out there. The social medias. Yeah. It's funny. I actually did open a TikTok account a couple of weeks ago. I haven't actually posted anything, but I did open an account. And I feel like that's an important first step. It is a really good step, but it is a slippery slope. Let me tell you, is it, it is so <laughs> I, addicting. What, what, I have seen you cross-posting TikTok posts. That's the thing about TikTok that's so great is you can post on all of your social channels right from the TikTok app. Oh, which makes life so much easier, obviously, because then you're not like having to go live on Facebook to go live on Twitter to go live on Instagram live to tell everybody that you've got a live webcast. It's all right there, which is so brilliant. But also it is really addicting. There are a lot of really smart, clever, creative people in the world that are making some awesome TikToks. That's a good endorsement. Yeah, I really love it. And then my last question for you is what gives you hope? My reflexive response is quite trite. So I apologize for this because I think it's something that probably everyone says. But young people 
looking at the kids from the Parkland School and all of the incredible activism that I have seen from young people in the last couple of years, I feel like I grew up in a generation that had a lot of insidious apathy. And a lot of my peers either didn't care or felt like they had given up. And there is no doubt it's palpable right now that young people in our country seem to care and they seem to feel like they can make a difference in the world and feel hopeful about that. I feel like my kids are going to carry that flame forward. And so they give me hope. Well, you give me hope, Misha. You give me hope. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Alyssa. This was lovely talking to you. Hi, Misha. So there are so many reasons that the fandom loves you. You're acting. You're not terrible to look at. Um, but it- <laughs> I have to be careful. My husband and my kids are here. Um, but I think that... Do they get offended when you talk about my acting? <laughs> um, but I think that the, the kindness that you share in the world and the changes that you're trying to make in the world have been wonderful. So if you had the power to make one social change in the world, what would it be and why? Hmm. <clears throat> I was actually, uh, I, I, I have this habit, there's a, a coffee shop in Bellingham, Washington that I go to and I, when I remember, which is most of the time, I pay for whoever is behind me in line. And uh, <laughs> recently, I paid for whoever was behind me, and it was somebody in a rusty old pickup truck. And then the person at the cash register was like, are you sure you want to pay for this? Because it's $150 at a coffee shop. Um, And I guess they were like buying lunch for all of Amazon headquarters or something. And I was like, no, 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 I don't need to pay for that. It's fine. But but it happened to me uh, recently. I got up there to the front of the line and I was ready to you know, pay for the person behind me and somebody had paid for my coffee. And I was like, oh, that feels so nice. It feels so good to have somebody have this moment of magnanimity, this, this generosity that's out of the blue. And, and I thought as I was driving away, wouldn't it be nice if all of our transactions were like that? I've said it on the show before, it drives me crazy when actors don't use their platforms for activism because they are afraid it will hurt their careers. First of all, no, it won't. And do you think anyone is refusing to take calls from Leonardo DiCaprio because he's an environmentalist? Do you think Deborah Messing is not getting work? Mark Ruffalo? Hell, I've been working nonstop since the 80s. Activism for the good of people, won't hurt your career. But more importantly, we need to fearlessly use our platforms for good because it's the right thing to do. You can't let the attacks against our democracy, against our people, stand because you're worried about your brand. You can't be gifted a huge following, a microphone that reaches people in ways that government and news media can't, and refuse to use it out of fear. If we as celebrities don't use our platforms to make the world a better place, we don't deserve them. It's why I appreciate people like Misha so very much. Despite the bullying, 
despite the attacks and threats from the other side. Despite right-wing cancel culture, Misha and others stand up and try to help people every single day. And I wish so many more celebrities would join us. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 